invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to that 1 Corinthians chapter 6 passage in verses 9 through 11. Clyde Waring has one of the worst cases of amnesia in recorded history in the world. He's a former museologist, a conductor, a tenor, a keyboardist who suffers from what is termed chronic amnesia. Um, He got it based on a neurological problem um, in his brain in 1985 when he was 47 years old. And now, 35 years later, he still struggles with it. He, he cannot remember virtually anything uh, before 1985. So almost the first 47 years of his life, he can't remember anything. And then perhaps, maybe worse than that, if that's possible, is that he now has a problem retaining his present memories. He can only remember something that he just said or did For no more than 7 to 30 seconds. Which means he basically has a total memory loss. Um, Every day he wakes up and then every 20 seconds he thinks he's waking up again and again and again. He can't remember his children's names. He, He greets his wife every morning and he continues to greet her all throughout the day. He either believes that they just met for the first time in their life or that it's been many, many years since they've seen each other. Um, When they're out to dinner together, um, he is able to, believe it or not, remember that he is eating chicken. But by the time he gets the bite of chicken on his fork to his mouth, he is forgetting or has forgotten completely what he is eating already. His wife, Deborah, has written a book about her life with Clive, and she titled it, Forever Today. Literally, he spends every day trying to remember who he is and what that means for everyone and everything in his life. His daily memory crisis has created a daily identity crisis for him and his life. The Corinthians, as you read the text, and I'll point out this morning, we're facing a spiritual amnesia crisis. Uh, theirs, unlike Clive's, were willful. Um, they were not remembering their gospel redemptive past. And they needed to understand afresh and anew their new identity in Christ. And as a result of the memory crisis they had, uh, it was producing an identity crisis. Who they were was not matching up with how they were living. And it was negatively affecting everyone and everything in their lives. And that's why in our text and throughout all of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tries to remind the Corinthians who they really are, and he does it and he cues them off by little you are statements, and they are scattered all throughout this book because of its importance. Uh, Chapter 1 and verse 30, for example, as I survey survey them for you, he says, you are in Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 9, you are God's field, God's building. Chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17, you are God's temple, You are, he says, that temple. Chapter 4 and verse 10, he goes back and forth as we looked at last week. We are fools, our identity. You are wise. We are weak. You are strong. You are honored. We are disreputed. So he goes on and on. Chapter 5 and verse 6. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. 
Verse 15 and 19, numerous times, even in the chapter that we're in, he calls them, in verses 1 and 2, saints, twice. He calls them members of Christ, in verse 15. In verse 5, he calls them brothers. It's a family term. Verse 19, he says, a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what you are. And then he tells them what you're not. You are not your own. And then he ends in chapter 12 and verse 27. He says, you are the body of Christ. You can't read 1 Corinthians and all the identity formation statements that Paul makes and not come to the conclusion that the gospel is about identity. It's about surrendering to the Lord that he can tell you who you are and who you are not. See, as a Christian, you do not get to form your own identity. God gives you your identity. So let me say it straight to you. Christ is not an add-on to your already existing identity. Instead, when you become a believer, he remakes your identity. You may be very smart, you may be beautiful, you may be athletic, you may be popular, you may be very successful at your job and at your work, but in Christ, that is not your identity. And we do not just add him on to all those things I listed and many others. See, Christ is not an accessory. He is not an accessory to your identity as if somehow you're the same way that you choose options on a car you're buying last year. My daughter got an accident, so we gave her our car, which meant that we got really one of the first times in our married life, we got a new car. And it's interesting, we got a Mazda, and the options are crazy what you can get nowadays. You have the rear view mirrors on the sides, and now they tell you if someone's getting too close, and they, they'll actually, the car will, the jerk, the, the steering wheel will swerve a little bit, so you get out of the way. I mean, it has the cruise control that slows down automatically if you get too car, far, close to a car in front of you. If you're moving over in your lane, the lane divider thing will go off on the screen to tell you that you're getting out of your lane. I mean, the lights dim and get bright based on how dark it is, and you don't have to do any of those on yourself. By wipers, as the rain gets harder or lighter, the wipers change. I mean, it's endless how many options there are. But here's what Jesus says. That's not what it means when you're a Christian. See, I'm not just another option in the the E package or the XL package or whatever. See, I'm not just another accessory in your life. See, really the truth is the opposite, is that Jesus is the main thing in your life, and in your new identity, all the other things in your life become accessories around him. See, some believers try to accessorize Jesus. I've seen it in teenagers. I've seen it in single adults. I've watched it even in adults, even older adults. I've seen people who are willing to, can I say, wear him. They want to wear Jesus as an accessory in their life as long as it doesn't make them look bad in front of others. As long as it doesn't jeopardize their popularity or make them look like they're too different from everybody else. As long as it keeps them in good standing, literally, with the things that they want to achieve in their life. As long as it helps them to continue to accomplish their own purposes. And then if that's true and those conditions are right, then they're willing to wear Jesus as a little bit of an accessory on the side because, you know, they are religious, by the way. I've come to the conclusion from reading this text and many other texts that you could never be who you were made to be apart from God. 
Let me say it again. You can never be who you were made to be, and as a Christian, remade or recreated to be, apart from God. That's why I believe the Apostle Paul was what I call an entrepreneur of identity. He was in the business of identity formation, as I believe all pastors do. One of the things that we could call when we come to church and every time we have a Bible study or hear a message or a Sunday school lesson or a small group, here's what we're doing. We're teaching you how God sees you so that you can better live that out in your life. Paul was doing that for the Corinthians. He was their agent of identity transformation. And because of that, because they didn't live in a vacuum, because they lived in Corinth, and because you're in Jesus, but you're also in Jersey. See, that's why as a pastor, I am constantly trying to remind you who you are. What is your identity? What is true in your life because you're a Christian? And Paul was seeking that for the Corinthians. He wanted them, as I want you, and as Christ wants you, to live worthy of the identity that he has given you. Now for Paul... And for us this morning, in order to do that, he asked them a series of questions, 10 of them to be exact, that are littered all throughout 1 Corinthians. And they all start with the same identical little phrase, do you not know? Now, he could have just come straight out and said, here's who you are, and you are awful because you're not even living close to what that is like. He doesn't. But out of love and concern for them, he asked them in a little bit of a rhetorical question. And he says this 10 times, chapter 3 and verse 16, 5, 6. And then listen to this, 6 out of the 10 times he uses it is in our chapter alone. And then he has a couple more in chapter 9. He asks this, do you not know? And literally as you read the text, you could put in parentheses behind that little statement, do you not know who you are? <laughs> do you really not know who you are? Because if you did... The, the idea is that you wouldn't be living this way. You wouldn't be making the choices that you do. And in our text, chapter 5 and 6, there were two categories or topics that he wants to address with this little question. He's going to do a bunch more before we're done through chapter 9. But here's the two he's starting off with. He says, listen, you are acting, chapter 5, verse 1, you're living like you're Gentiles. In chapter 6, and that issue was he was addressing their sexuality because they were living, some of them were living very immoral lives. And in fact, such immoral lives that the Gentiles wouldn't be caught doing what they were doing, people who had the identity of Jesus. You come to chapter 6, and they were taking other Christians in their own church to court. They were suing other Christians. He says, listen, you're supposed to be the righteous people, and he says, you're the called out ones. You're the agioi. You're the holy ones. You're the saints. And you're in the same family. You don't treat one another this way, he says. In fact, in verse 7 of chapter 6, he says, listen, when people treat you unrighteously, and that's the word wrong, why not just suffer wrong? Why not just bear with the unrighteous treatment? But instead, verse 8, he says, and he's using the righteous word over and over again, translated differently in this text. But in verse 8, he says, but you yourselves are being, instead of accepting unrighteous treatment for other brothers and bearing with it like Jesus has done with you, here's what you do. You act unrighteously yourself. You take them to court. You take them for all they're worth, he says. The problem with that and why they were living immorally in their sexual lives why they were having horrible problems and the way they were treating others relationally was very this. They had gospel amnesia. 
gospel amnesia. They had forgotten who they were and what Christ had done. And let me skip ahead a little bit. The end of verse 11 says, but you were justified. It's the same root word for righteous. You were made righteous. This is what Jesus did for you. He absorbed all your unrighteousness and mistreatment. He took all the wrong. See, that's what you should be doing. Not taking people to court. You should be absorbing it. He says, Jesus was a holy one, but you're not living holy. Jesus used his body for God. And it's a temple, but you're not. See, here's the problem. They weren't living worthy of their identity. So Paul asked them some identity diagnostic questions. And so let me start out this morning asking you some. Please think about them. Think beyond this morning about them. Who are you? No, who are you really? What has happened to you and through you because of Christ, if you claim to know him? Where are you in your life? Where are you going? What do you do because of who you are? See, you tell me the answers to those things, and I will tell you who you are. I will tell you what your identity is. Let me sum it up with a pretty straightforward statement. The degree that Christ is involved in the answers to these questions, I believe corresponds to the degree that you can be confident that you are a Christian. Let me say it again. To the degree that Christ is involved in your answers to those diagnostic questions corresponds to the degree that you can be confident that you are a Christian. And that is not my opinion. That is what Paul is saying. Let me unpack it for you. This little verses 9 and 10 are framed with what's called a bookend or an inclusio. And it's a little identical statement that begins verse 9 and ends verse 10. And that little statement is this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, a little bit less than Jesus um, in his writings, talks about the kingdom. It's not all that often. In fact, this phrase, will not inherit the kingdom of God, is only used one other time in 1 Corinthians, chapter 15 and verse 50. And he says, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what he means is you can't be saved. You can't be where God is. You will not be in his kingdom someday. He uses it again to show you how strong the statement is in Galatians 5.21. Those who do such things, the works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You live a fleshy life. You live a carnal life. He says no matter what you say, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul wanted to know, the Corinthians to know, and he wants us to know this morning in no uncertain terms... That faith transforms identity or it is not faith. If having the identity of Jesus doesn't alter and transform and revolutionize to some degree your life, it isn't real. Unfortunately today, there is a number of people, there are a number of people who don't really want a new identity. Most people today who seemingly wear Jesus, they want to feel good about themselves. They, they want to be comfortable and they want to be entertained. And they think that if they're really just good people, that someday they'll die and go to heaven. See, they're interested really in a new destiny, 
but not really a new identity and all that goes with it. See, Christian faith in our generation has been reduced to just believing certain ideas or engaging in certain religious rituals, minimalistic ones like getting baptized or going to church or occasionally reading your Bible and such. But literally, the Bible would tell us that having a Christian identity is what makes you a Christian And that Christian identity means having a faith that you live out. That you live out every single day because that identity has been given to you to Jesus. Let me give you an example of that. Don't turn there, just listen to me. Ephesians 5, 8 says of the Ephesians, For you were once darkness, now watch the change, new identity, but now you are, see it, you are light. But he doesn't stop there. Because their new identity of being light means they're going to live differently. He says, walk as children of light. You see that? New identity, new activity. We do not have time to develop it. I encourage you to read John 8 on your own, where Jesus argues with the religious leaders about who are really the true children of Abraham. And they believe it because externally they practice certain things. Right? And they follow Moses and Torah. But Jesus says, oh no, you're not children of Abraham. You're actually children of the devil. And imagine saying that to religious people who are respected and honored and look up into their day. But Jesus does because here's what he knows. They were not living according to their identity that they claimed. They wanted actually to have Jesus killed. He said, Abraham didn't do that. See, their identity and their activities, they didn't match. And so Paul warns in the most strictest terms, he says, in verse 9, don't, listen to that, don't be deceived. Because it is easy, isn't it? It is easy to be tricked and fooled by the world, the flesh, and the devil that you can say that you are righteous, but that you are not living righteous. And so Paul says, Although you say you're righteous, you're not living righteous. And so let me tell you, as a warning, what happens to really people who live unrighteously. You want to take your brothers to court? You want to live sexually immoral lives as you claim to be a Christian? Let me tell you what happens to people like that. He says, don't be deceived, verse 9. Neither the sexually immoral, he, he goes right after him. that's the very first thing. Idolaters, adulterers. People who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you go back one chapter to chapter 5 and verses 9 through 11, take the list in 5, 9 through 11 and set it side by side of the list of chapter 6, 9 through 11. And what you're going to find is those terms are all nominatives. Now that means this, that they are nouns, they are identity markers. In other words, he's saying people who live this way as a lifestyle... This is their identity. So people see themselves. This, you ask them, who, you know who I am? I am this kind of person. I'm a homosexual. I'm this. I'm, I'm a thief. I'm a greedy person. I'm, so he says, these are the things that describe people. They're their identities. And in the lists of 10, there are five sexual identities and five non-sexual identities. And what he's trying to tell them is, this is who you are. And see this list? This is not who you are. See, this is not who you are sexually. This is not who you are relationally. And may I say, you cannot separate who you are from what you do. 
Paul wants them to know that. You cannot claim it. I don't care how often you come to church. He would say in Corinth, listen, you cannot separate who you are. You say you're righteous, but you, in your deeds you are unrighteous. He says it can't be. It can't be. Because doing demonstrates identity. Identity is shown in action or in the failure to act. Firemen is an identity, being a fireman. And what do they do? They fight fires. No matter what you say, you're not a fireman if you don't fight fires. Doctors and nurses heal people. And if you're not into healing people and caring about people, then you're not living up to the identity that you have. Artists make works of art, sculpture, painting, all kinds of things. And if you can't do that or you don't do that, are you really an artist? Teachers educate people, but if you can't handle and hate young people or people and all their problems and not learning and you can't deal with it, what kind of teacher really are you? See, the activity corresponds to the identity. So it's not an overstatement to say this. We are what we do. In light of identity in this passage, let me define sin for you then. Sin is the refusal to live according to one's true identity. See, you know why the ten things in these two lists are sinful? Because they are choices that people make which are not in keeping with their true identity. They are identity choices that they're making apart from God. Yes, they are disobedience to God's commandments and all the things that we know to be true. And the Corinthians knew this. So he says, don't you know, don't be deceived. You know this is true, he says. You know what God's word says about these things. And he says these things to you, yes, because they're wrong, but they're not in keeping with who you are. You see, if you have ears to hear this morning, I want you to know this. You can't enter God's kingdom without God's identity. You can't. I go on plane trips, not recently, of course, fly internationally or domestically, and with all the security measures that are being taken today, you know as well as I do if you've been in the airport or taken a trip, that you can't even begin to hope to get on the plane. You can't ever hope to arrive at your final destination without what? Identification. You have to have your driver's license. If you're going out of the country, you have to have more than that. You have to have your passport. Your name has to be on the ticket. It has to match up with those IDs. You have to have a boarding pass. You can't get on a plane. You can't go anywhere on a plane or in another country unless you have the proper ID. Because my identity determines my activity. God says you have no hope of getting into God's kingdom if you don't share in God's identity. And that's important Because when we live out a fake identity, sin always fragments it. Sin fractures our identity. And if we're not careful, we will become this. It's a big word, bifurcation. You know what bifurcation means? To divide into two. And that's what was happening in Corinth. They had all these spiritual gifts and they had all these spiritual blessings and they were all these people claiming to be righteous but in their lifestyle and their daily living and their moral relationships and their relationships even with other Christians, they were living completely different. They were divided. Is that you? 
Are you someone this morning who wears the name of Jesus, but you really, truthfully, on a day-to-day basis, you refuse to live out your true identity? See, you are fragmented, fractured. It's an identity crisis of the eternal kind. I mean, there's a difference how you live or how you act in front of your friends and then how you act in front of your parents. I mean, the things you look at on the internet and what you look at when other people are around you can be completely different. Privately and publicly, you are two different people. See, the way the world sees you at your job and the way that people see you, your wife most of all, your husband at home, can be quite divergent. Paul says, if you're a Christian, if you're inheriting the kingdom of God, if you've really been saved, it'll show up in your life. And and it'll show up this way because being and doing are kept together in your life. So he says to them, let me remind you then of what happened to you so that you can let this happen in your life and relationships to others. He says, and notice in verse number 11, and such were... Aorist passive. It's, it's a passive verb. And such were some of you. And now he's going to use this verb three times. You were, right? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. They're passive verbs, meaning that someone from the outside was acting on them to make the radical change. It was divine intervention. It was the grace of God. The reason they're not doing all those things in the two list anymore and how their life has completely changed, and by the way, may I add to it, the way, because your life has changed. The reason you don't do what you used to do, B.C., before Christ, is only because of the radical grace of God, that he acted on you. You weren't seeking him, you weren't coming after him, but he was coming after you. And God transformed your split spirituality and gave you a new identity. So strong are Paul's comments that he uses the strongest adversative contrast translated but he says but you were washed in other words you used to be filthy you used to be unclean you used to be ungodly and he's already given examples to give proof of that but you were sanctified you weren't set apart to me you were living for your own purposes you were living for all the things that you could get out of life but you were justified you weren't members of God's family made righteous by Christ's righteousness no that wasn't you you were in Satan's family you were in a different kingdom a different world altogether and he says but see listen let me jog your gospel memory that's not what you are now that's not what you are now now you're washed the sin and the stain of it has been removed You're sanctified. The power of sin no longer has a grip on your life anymore. Now, because of Jesus and setting you apart, you can live differently. You can serve him instead of your lusts and your desires. No longer are you in a family that is completely antithetical and contrary to all that Jesus is. Now you're made righteous. Therefore, here's the idea. Then you need to live it. You say you're saints, live like it. You say you're righteous, live like it. You say you're family, then live like it. You see, the Corinthians were failing to remember who the gospel was making them to be. They were forgetting who they are in Jesus 
and how and what it meant to live out their new identity. And Paul says in that little phrase, and such were some of you, here's what he says, they were now ex-idolaters. They were now ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-thieves, ex-greedy, ex-drunkards, revilers. They used to be, and now they're, they're ex all those things. They used to be, but they're not anymore, which means this. See, as Christians, we can, by the grace of God, and we are, by the grace of God, changing. Changing. Their identity maps and who they were had all been redrawn. All of them. And Paul says... To us this morning, and so are yours. See, who you are is no longer the same. Now this morning, we could give testimony if people were here. Maybe you say, I used to be an ex-drug addict. I used to be an ex-alcoholic. I used to be an ex, and you fill in the blank. I mean, there are a lot of things. You could, I, was, I used to be a Pastor Walker. I can tell you stories. I used to talk like this, and the language I used, and the things I looked at, and wow, if I told you all these things, you'd be red in the face and embarrassed. And that may be true. But the reality is, if the transformation of our identity has not occurred, then your faith isn't real. It's not that we're perfect. It's not that there aren't different people who grow and are sanctified at different levels, different rates. But what is true of all of God's people is that there's an X part of their life, a part of their life that's no longer characteristic of who they are. They're on a different trajectory. It may be at a different plane, a different speed, but we're on a trajectory and we're moving toward a different goal, and that is to be fully like Jesus someday. And so he ends the verse in chapter 6 and verse 11. He says, you were washed in contrast to what you used to be. You were sanctified, in contrast. You were justified, in contrast. And he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, he mentions God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. He says, all of God has made you all that you are. It's a Trinitarian total transformation. And he ends that way, I think, because he wants to relay this principle that I want to close with this morning. He wants you and I to see this. You cannot, let me say it again, you cannot live differently until you see yourself differently. You know how you should see yourself and your identity? A person that every member of the Godhead has worked together to radically change. That's who you are. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of them as God have worked together to bring you to the place that you have a new identity and as a result of it, a new lifestyle. And so he says, God has done this for you. Now you do this with your body then. You glorify God. God has done this for you. Now you absorb the unrighteous treatment, even of other Christians in your church. You do that. Why? Because that's what I've done for you. That's who you are, and you'll never live differently, and you'll never be able to handle not taking vengeance and getting angry and holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness and holding against people and having grudges and slandering and talking behind people's back. See, all those things are going to continue until you see who you are. You cannot live differently until you are a person who sees yourself differently. And who are you? You are a child of God. And like Jesus, you need to start living that way. Pastor Walker, all right, 
I have to admit to you, I'm not there. What in the world do I do if I've blown it? I mean, I've really blown it. I mean, you know those two list things you were talking about that should be X things in my life? Um, Not all of those things are still X in my life as much as they ought to be. What do you do with that? Let me close with, don't turn there. I just want you to listen to me in the remaining few minutes we have. In Luke 15, and if you're a Christian and know the Bible fairly well, you're going to be familiar with this. Let me explain it to you from a different angle. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables about lost things, the last one being the parable of the lost son. In the story in which we call the prodigal son, the youngest brother comes up to his father and says, give me all my inheritance now. In other words, he basically doesn't want to be who he is anymore. His identity, his whole life has been, I am my father's son. As one author said, now he wants to unsun himself. So he asks for all this money, and he goes out and wastes it on what's called riotous living in the King James and other translations. He was being ungodly. He would have a life filled with the things on our list of ten. He would have had a lot of those things in his life. But he was his father's son, but he wasn't living like it. And so, a beautiful phrase, maybe one of my favorites in Scripture. One day when he's feeding the swine, the Bible says he came to himself. I take that to mean this. He finally came to understand what his true identity is. He realizes, you know what? I don't have to live this way. In fact, I shouldn't be living this way. I have a father who actually cares about me. So I'm going to go home. Now, because uh, he blew it, which you might be thinking you're in that category, and and perhaps you are. I mean, he really blew it. I mean, really blew it. So he says this, you know, I'm really unworthy of my identity. There's no way my father will ever reinstate me to be called a son again. So I'm going to go home. And the best that I could hope for is that my father makes me one of his hired servants. A non-son identity. He gets back and his father has been waiting for him. He runs down the road and you know all about that. He puts his arms around his son and hugs him and kisses him. And then he does what his son probably could never have thought would ever take place. Despite his words, which he can hardly get out of his mouth about how he's not worthy to be a son anymore, his father says, bring the robe and put it on him. And the ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, by the way, which are all symbols of sonship, not slavery. Get the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate and have a party because the father is going to insist and he won't be turned down. He's going to insist that no matter how bad his son is, he is going to reinstate him as such. I've got news for you, and it's good. Grace allows you to be who you are supposed to be, even when you don't deserve it. See, Pastor Walker, I, I know what my identity is. I know what I, who I am but I also look at what I do, and they don't match up. Can I really hope, can I really hope that he'd ever want me to be his son again? Yes. Because who is God? A God of grace. 
And for those who repent and those who are willing to turn away from their lifestyle, you don't have to turn back and say, I hope just to be God's slave. He says, I want to take you back as a son. See, I've got a party ready for you this morning. And I've got a robe fitted to your size and a ring perfect for your finger. Sandals, exactly what you need. And we're ready to throw the party if you'll repent, if you'll come back. And you'll say, God, I want my, who I am and what I do, I want them to go together. Even though I don't deserve it, God says, oh, I have grace. I can continue to transform your identity. But hold on a second. You would say, oh, well, Pastor Walker, I really hope that happens, you know, because there are a lot of people I know who are like that, maybe even some people at church. And you think because you're not out there and, and you're maybe not doing a lot of those things on the list that you don't need grace. But you know there's two sons in the story in Luke 15. The second was the elder son. And you know what he says? He rejected his brother's identity. He did not have any grace. He didn't want his brother to come home. He didn't want his father to forgive him. He certainly didn't want his father to reinstate him because that meant less money and property possessions for him. And he was not about grace whatsoever. In fact, the elder son, to be honest, was just as guilty as the younger son about misunderstanding who he was. Because the older son did not understand his identity either. And it's obvious that that was true in Luke 15, 29. When after his dad calls the son, the elder son, because he wouldn't come to the party. So he goes out to talk to him. And here's what their conversation consists of. The older son says, listen, I've been serving you. And the word in the Greek is to slave. He says, I've been like your slave. This whole, I, I never wasted your money. I never shamed your name. I acted like a son this whole time. But you know how he understood his identity? He really didn't see himself as a son. He saw himself as a slave. Someone who just kept all the rules. Someone who thought that if I just looked the part and looked good on the outside, that it really didn't matter about the attitude and the lack of grace I had on the inside. But his father wouldn't leave him there either. And his father bid him back into the party because he said, listen, I've got grace for that too. And he insisted that his elder son remain a son, a privileged one at that, because all he had, here's what the father says, all I have is yours. See that? But you don't have my heart. And the elder son said, should have said, here's my identity, and I need to be like my father and have his heart too, but he didn't. See, all of them, the younger son, the older son, they needed to have their identity maps redrawn. And perhaps this morning, as you're listening, you need yours redrawn too. Whether you're the prodigal younger out there, somebody, or you're the elder son staying at church. But the truth is, if everybody knew, you don't really have God's heart that you need to have. It would be good this morning, wouldn't it, that we all just turned in our fake identities, all the fake ID that we've had, and choose to live out by the grace of God who we really are in Jesus. So let me close by saying, who are you really? Let's pray, and then we'll close with two songs of worship to help us to think more about that in our hearts. Father, help us. Help us. We have been given such an identity, such an identity in Christ. 
far more than we deserve. I pray that everyone who claims to be a child of God at Faith Baptist Church would long to live worthy of that identity. We're not truthfully as the prodigal would say. We're not worthy to be called your sons. But you have taken slaves who deserve no grace. And you have lavished love on us. Lavished it. May it move our hearts to no longer, as Paul says, live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised on the third day. Bring the prodigals home, Master, today, that you might continue to change them and conform them more into your image, that we might be who we are in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.